Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Stuart Corbridge. I'm the head of the Development Studies Institute here at LSE, and it's really a very great pleasure to welcome you to tonight's destined stickered public lecture by Professor William Easterly. Uh, Bill is going to speak for about 45 minutes on the topic of we don't know how to solve global poverty and that's a good thing. Uh, Bill will then take questions, we'll probably do it in groups of about two or three. Uh, we're obviously very full tonight so if you can keep your questions short and sharp that will be very helpful. And now is the time please, if you haven't done so already, to turn off any mobile phones and bleepers. Uh, Bill Easterly really doesn't need an introduction. It's you included, and me also. Bill Easterly really doesn't need an introduction to anybody that's familiar with contemporary economics, and particularly development economics. Uh, but I will give him an introduction anyway. Professor Easterly has been a professor of economics at New York University since 2003, and before that was a senior research economist at the World Bank uh, for about 15 years. Bill is also uh, a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research in the US and a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Professor Easterly is a recent winner of the Hayek Prize of the Manhattan Institute and year in year out Bill is ranked as one of the 100 most cited economists anywhere in the world and among the top five development economists. And LSE students, particularly Destin students amongst you, uh, will know why that is and won't be surprised by that at all. In addition to writing a large number of key papers in development economics, for example on poverty traps, on development assistance, on institutions and ethnic conflict, just to name three topics, Professor Eastley has also published two books that have been very widely read and much lauded. A book from 2001, The Elusive Quest for Growth, Economists' Adventures and Misadventures in the Tropics, and more recently uh, from 2006, and there are copies outside, I'll mention that at the end of the, the session, The White Man's Burden, How the West's Efforts to Aid the Rest Have Done So Much Ill and So Little Good. Uh, as if all that wasn't enough, uh, Professor Easterly maintains an Aid Watch blog that attracts uh, a large number of hits and, of course, has proven himself to be a devastating interlocutor both in print uh, and in person of other scholars in his field, uh, including Harjun Chang here in the UK, and most notably of all, a number of exchanges with, with Jeffrey Sachs. Uh, <laughs> pause for effect. Bill, you might correct me uh, in a moment, but unless I'm very much mistaken, I suspect that Professor Sachs might be in your sights once again tonight. Uh, we'll soon find. <laughs> we'll soon find out. Bill, we're, we're truly delighted that you're here. Thank you. Thank you very much for that very warm, undeserved introduction. It's, I feel very welcome here and it's great to see all of you and be with you tonight. I've given you kind of a puzzling title for this talk, so let me immediately try to clear things up right away by giving you the outline to the talk. The first part of the talk will be um, 
the first, uh, here's the outline. Uh, part one will be uh, <laughs> uh, we don't know how to solve global poverty. So I'll talk about that for a bit and get you all very depressed. <laughs> and then I'll try to convince you. Uh, I sort of you know, dedicated my life to lost causes that uh, are very difficult to argue for, but I'll try to convince you that it's actually a good thing that we don't know how to solve global poverty. So, that's, so just wait for that part to come up while you're feeling depressed during the first part. So um, let's get right into just how amazingly ignorant we are about growth and development. First, I apologize for citing myself first. <laughs> um, this is from the Elusive Quest for Growth. It talked about the failure of development, panaceas that failed, um, soon followed by Al Harberger, who said there aren't too many policies we can say with certainty that affect growth. Danny Roderick also said, no idea how to raise growth. Solo said, no idea how to raise growth. <laughs> and then the World Bank, last of all, spent $4 million to say, no idea how to raise growth. <laughs> um, so um, I think, I, I hope I've convinced you there's sort of a consensus at this point that we have no idea how to raise growth. Um, now, I wanna, what I want to convince you of in the, in the next few slides is that you know we've we've really earned this ignorance. That it's not you know as an academic, you really have to work hard to be ignorant. It's it's not something that just anyone can achieve. You it takes a lot of learning to achieve this degree of of total ignorance about how to raise economic growth. So let me just sort of go through some of the reasons why we don't know how to raise growth. So we we've done a, a very large amount of of work of statistical work searching desperately for some variable that would be the, the key variable to raise economic growth. We're looking for some policy variable that a government could just tweak a little bit and then raise the rate of economic growth and thus accelerate the end of uh, extreme poverty in that country. So uh, to make a long story short, the consensus of the academic literature is that we've, we've spent 20 years looking for such variables and we've failed to find any. So this has been shown in various kind of formal econometric ways that I've, I've put lots of technical language up here on the, on the slide to sort of justify my academic credentials that there's all kinds of different ways of torturing the data to try to get the data to confess just what is the variable that raises growth. Um, one uh, study by Xavier Sally Martin and some of his co-authors in 2004, actually, the title of it was the somewhat more appealing title, I just ran four million regressions. <laughs> and um, and he, basically the, uh, the output of uh, the more technical title is Bayesian model averaging, but uh, that's basically just running four million regressions and the desperate hope that some variable would, would show up in most of them as being uh, statistically reliably associated with growth. And he actually claimed that he had found a few at that point. So there was a glimmer of hope at that point that he had found a few. I think one of them was primary education. Just do primary education and you'll have growth. But then, you know, academics being what they are, a new set of academics came along who have just published a new paper showing, redoing uh, Xavier Sally Martins and his co-authors exercise uh, with a very minor tweak in the data set, which is, uh, this is a great way to kind of keep people honest in academia is you take a, an old result that people make strong claims for, and then you take a new data set that is equally plausible to the old data set, and you just rerun the exercise with the, with the new data set. 
and see if you still get the same results. So this is really a, a really, you know, this is as close as we economists get to some kind of scientific, you know, rigor and really testing and replicating results. So they did that. And the equally plausible samples were of the order of things like there's something called the Penn World Tables that measures per capita income. Well, that's revised every few years, so they took a new revision of that data and redid the exercise. Or they took the World Bank data instead of the Penn World Tables data. So I'm just mentioning all those boring details to, to say that these were equally plausible data sets, and the results fell apart. Primary education was no longer the savior. It was something else. I don't even remember what, but there was no robust variables, even after running these millions of regressions trying to find the robust variables. Now, you know, this is before we even got to the question of, you know, we all know that correlation does not imply causality, that even if we find a correlation with economic growth, we would have to decide what causes what. Does growth cause primary education or is it the other way around? But, you know, we're in such a primitive state right now in, in the empirical literature that we never even got to that question because we never even got a correlation that proved to be robust in this literature. So that's, how, that's the kind of hard work that we put in to say that we are now completely clueless on how to raise growth. Um, then this is stuff that's sort of more um, easy to talk about is that then the other thing I think that disillusioned uh, a lot of the researchers on growth and development was the, there were various forceful attempts to raise growth by, uh, by large international programs. So the first one was structural adjustment by the World Bank and the IMF, implementing the Washington Consensus in the 1980s and 90s um, in Latin America, Africa, and the Middle East. And that failed to raise growth. Growth did not increase. Um, and it had what seems to be the, uh, the main lasting effect of that seems to be the this sort of xenophobic populist backlash against the World Bank and IMF in Latin America that's been going on over the last five years. And then a similar attempt was uh, shock therapy in the former Soviet Union when uh, you know, the Soviet Union and, uh, and Eastern Europe made the transition from communism to capitalism. We tried to do it all at once, just import a bunch of free market economists, tell them how to do free markets, and bang, you'll have economic growth. Well, instead, we had one of the worst depressions in economic history in the former Soviet Union during the transition. And then things have not really gotten any better since then. Um, the, new, the new buzzwords in the 90s were fixing governance. Nobody was quite sure what governance was, but whatever it was, we fixed it. And uh, that, was, <laughs> that was disappointing that it did not, did not seem to generate much development or growth response. And then the last and most ambitious thing going on now is this kind of new idea of fixing failed states, of uh, you know, post-conflict reconstruction, peacekeeping, et cetera. And you know, that's, that did seem to go okay in a few small countries like Sierra Leone and Liberia, but may not be going quite as well in Somalia, Iraq, and Afghanistan. Um, now part of the problem with, with trying to you know, understand what was what was the secret to success with growth rates is that growth rates themselves are extremely noisy. And this is a feature of growth rates that I think is not widely appreciated. So I think this is something that, that needs to be much better understood to, to understand why we're at this impasse that we're at now. So uh, one very simple reason why growth rates are very noisy is that there are measurement errors in growth rates. So I, I've already given you a hint of that when I told you you know, substituting one data set for another made a, a whole set of econometric results completely fall apart. 
Well, let me give you a little more detail on that. There's a new paper by Alwyn Young on Africa in which he, he delved into uh, which African countries actually did have data on constant price national accounts, which is what you would need to have to know the real, real rate of GDP growth. And there, he found that there are at least 15 on any year, 15 of the sub-Saharan African countries for which there are no data on constant price national accounts. And yet the UN national account somehow manages to report data for these countries that are themselves reporting no data. Anyway, uh, we're not quite sure how they do that. Let's not get into that now, but uh, we're obviously when you're uh, you know, announcing data when you have no data, then there is some possibility of measurement error, and that's the only <laughs> point that I—that's the only point I wanted to make. Um, and then, you know, there's other things that make the growth rate move around for uh, transitory reasons, for temporary reasons. Growth takes lots of temporary jumps or temporary falls. Uh, there are terms of trade shocks. There's the weather shocks. There's the ash cloud. There's the the. On there's uh, political instability, there's wars, um, or there, you know, sometimes there's you know, just sort of private sector dynamism can make, um, can make the growth rate jump around in a temporary fashion, that suddenly we discover Kenyan entrepreneurs discovered a major new export success in sending cut flowers to Europe. They now have 40% of the cut flowers market in Europe, and that was you know, a major entrepreneurial breakthrough that generated a spurt of growth as the cut flower industry emerged. But then it, you know, then it lasts, or then you might go through a kind of lean streak when you don't discover any new industries and you don't have good growth. So there's this amazing sort of noisiness or transitoriness in growth, that growth is just jumping around all the time. In fact, the, the technical way to say this is the standard deviation of the transitory component of growth is five percentage points. So you should sort of think, whenever you see a growth rate, the message of this slide is that you should not take it very seriously because it has a ver this very large temporary component that's going to disappear next year. So you should not, never get too excited about a high growth rate because it may chances are it contains a temporary element that will disappear. So that you can see why we have a hard time finding the secrets to growth when a lot of what a lot of the action in economic growth are just temporary fluctuations, and it's much harder to find the underlying permanent rates of growth in the midst of all this vast amount of noise in growth rates. So one thing, one thing that this implies is, is this very strong tendency that's called reversion to the mean or regression to the mean. That if you, the, on the horizontal axis here is the growth rate, the per capita growth rate from 1986 to 95 of all countries in the world. And then on the vertical axis you have the change in growth from 86 to 95 to the decade 96 to 2005. So what this says is if you were way below average and had, you were way off in the negative part of the horizontal axis, then you will have a positive change in growth because you'll move back towards the world average growth. And the other way to say that is if you had a very high rate of growth in 86 to 95, you'll probably have a fall in, the rate, in your rate of growth because you your high rate of growth includes that temporary element that I was talking about in the previous slide, and that's going to disappear, and so your growth rate is going to fall. So this is, a, you know, re regression to the mean is a very well-known uh, statistical property, but people don't realize that it applies in a sort of massive way to economic growth. 
So you can see how it's going to be very hard for us to figure out sort of when there's a, how we explain a growth acceleration as if it's the result of some conscious policy, when in fact it might just be some transitory temporary elements that we can't quite explain. So, I mean, the, the only good news about this is that there is one, at least one thing that we can predict, and this is a, this is a, a trick that I like to teach my students and, and I want to share with all of you because you can impress your friends with this, is one thing that you can predict with regression to the mean is if you just pick the countries that have the highest growth rates in the world, you can start, you know, nodding your head sort of wisely as if you really know a lot about, uh, let's say, um, you know, it would have been uh, South Korea. Uh, that's the KOR off to the right here. And you know, you can act as if you're a Korean expert and say, you know, well, but this is only on the, under the condition that you pick the country that has the highest growth rate in the world. And you say, well, you know, I, I really don't see the fundamentals going that well in Korea. I don't think this growth rate will last. I, I expect growth to decline in Korea. <laughs> uh, and most of the time you'll be right. <laughs> it's just regression to the mean. It's a great way you can impress your friends who don't understand statistics. Um, unfortunately, that's the only thing we can predict, but at least it allows you to impress your friends. So, you know, this is why um, the, this growth accelerations paper by Hausman, Pritchett, and Roderick had these, these two statements. The first, which generated a lot of excitement, and then the second killed off all the excitement. So the, the first statement was, growth accelerations are surprisingly common. And by growth acceleration, I don't remember exactly how they define it, but it was some you know, very large jump in growth rates that was sustained for a number of years. You know, it, was not a, it was not a minor deal. It was you know, a major thing happening that you had a growth acceleration. So 60 out of 110 countries have had at least one growth acceleration. This is so, it's, you know, it's a lot easier than we thought to have a growth acceleration. So it must be easy to have one, right? Well, unfortunately, the statement number two was uh, well, uh, growth accelerations are not preceded or accompanied by anything like changes in economic policies, any changes in institutions, any changes in politics, external conditions. All these determinants do a very poor job of predicting the turning points. And this is sort of exactly what you would expect them to find when growth is dominated by this you know, tremendous noisiness that where a lot of the action is just the disappearance of temporary positive surges in growth or temporary negative surges in economic growth. So now there is, there is an answer to dealing with noise, but it's probably not going to be super appealing to you. It, it's that um, you can average over very long periods of time to try to average out the noise. Now the bad news is when you start with an annual standard deviation of five percentage points of, of growth, you have to have very long periods to average average out uh, the, the noise. And this is one reason why a lot of the recent empirical research in, in, uh, in academic journals on development has been, instead of trying to determine growth rates, has been trying to determine levels of per capita income. So if you think of the level of per capita income as sort of the average over a long period of time, the cumulative average, especially in, in logs, this works out exactly, it's the cumulative average of all your previous growth over the past 3,000 years, uh, that, that's long enough to average out the noise, uh, you know, then today's level of per capita income, it does have a more stable, reliable relationship with good things that we know about, like institutions and human capital. So we can say something kind of more 
secure and meaningful about you know institutions cause development or human capital causes development. So at least that starts to give us something that sounds like it might be an answer. Uh, unfortunately, this is only uncovering the long-run relationship. You know, it's uncovering a relationship that is the result of a couple hundred years of evolution of institutions and income, or human capital and income. And none of these studies shed any light whatsoever on the transition paths that would explain where you're likely to be going over the next few years in the short to medium run. And I, I don't know about you, but most uh, my experience with politicians is they're not real happy if you tell them, well, you know, this policy that I'm recommending to you um, may not work out over the next few years, but I'm sure it'll work out over the next century. <laughs> you know, that, that's not, it doesn't usually go over well with politicians, but that's kind of the state of our knowledge at this point. So hence my statement that uh, we don't know how to solve global poverty. So I, I hope I've convinced you now that, uh, you know, decades of research have, um, you know, there's this old, um, this old line that, you know, his, his research has so far shed a lot of darkness on the subject, and if he continues researching, we'll soon so know nothing at all about the subject. That's, that's kind of what has happened with growth research. Uh, but now I want to take on a kind of more ambitious task, and I you know, ask you to give me, cut me a little slack, because uh, this is a fairly challenging thing to try to convince you that not knowing how to raise economic growth and achieve the end of poverty is a good thing. So you know, try to open your mind a little bit and see if you're willing to be persuaded that this could be a blessing in disguise. What, now, how could that possibly be? Well, let's go back to the question that we always ask in development. This is the question that you know, all of development is about. It's a question all of us who work in development are asked this about 10 times a day. What must we do to end poverty? So let's, let's just think about this question and, and think, you know, based on what I just told you, how we would answer this question. And I'm actually going to say that I'm going to give you a, I'm going to suggest an answer to this question, a definite answer. So I, I, I hope you're getting suitably excited about this, that after all this time, you're at 7 o'clock in the evening in London at the London School of Economics, we finally answered this question. <laughs> and the, que the answer was, you're asking the wrong question. <laughs> And you expected something that continued to be puzzling and paradoxical, right? So why are we asking the wrong question? Well, let's just think what, what we're saying when we ask this question. Uh, first of all, who is we exactly? <laughs> who, who is it exactly that it was in that we that is going to end the poverty? I mean, has anyone ever thought about that? Did anyone, has anyone ever explained who is the we? And second of all, uh, how, how are we going to have the power to implement that answer that we found? So I suppose we did find an answer, that we found the answer. You know, it's due, you know, this comprehensive package of so much infrastructure and so much human capital and a little bit of you know, tariffs and a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and we had the exact answer on how you end poverty. Well, how, who would exactly have the power to implement this comprehensive package to end poverty? Well, you know, when you, the more you think about this, you realize the answers are not, to these questions are not very appealing ones. Um, you know, the, the only feasible we would seem to have to be uh, some combination of local rulers, aid agencies, 
Um, lately, some of the armies are getting into the act also with the, the new concept of merging defense and development. Uh, I won't spend any time on that, uh, just to say I think it's appalling and, uh, and stay away from it. But, um, and of course, us development experts. Um, and of course, you're going to have to allow us to have few or you know, very few or uh, preferably no checks whatsoever on our powers so that we can implement the answer. Uh, so namely, you know, this answer, this question really only makes sense when you grant us that we're going to be able to operate in an authoritarian manner. And not only that, kind of in a, a paternalistic manner because, you know, we, the development experts, are usually people that look like me, you know, uh, kind of, you know, aging white men, uh, you know, deciding the answer for, uh, for the rest of the world. Um, there's something that's, you know, kind of paternalistic and unappealing about this elite we uh, sitting in New York and Washington and London deciding the answer for the rest of the world on how we end poverty. And there's also, it's not very appealing to give either the local rulers or the aid agencies authoritarian powers to implement the answer also. So, you know, if we at the same time, whoever, if the we is the people, uh, is all of us in the audience today, if we at the same time hold democratic values, uh, we believe in things like individual rights, we believe in the equality of all, we believe in self-determination, then this approach is not, it becomes less and less appealing the more we think about it. The more we think about having an answer would require this authoritarian paternalism that is not at all appealing on normative grounds. And so, you know, I just want to, uh, what I really want to say here is that there's no, the old dream that we could have sort of this technocratic answer to development that's free of values, that's, that's value-free and just technocratic, that you just implement the technical solution to development, that, that's just a delusion, that we have to start with some set of values. And so it's perfectly legitimate for us to you know, assert the, the values that a large uh, number of us share and say these are the normative values from which we're starting from, and then ask, you know, in that context, what would it mean to achieve the end of world poverty. We would not like, in that context, our, we, if, our, if our normative values are, uh, and by the, and this is one thing that I'm trying to explain in this, in this slide, is that by democratic uh, processes, or whatever the opposite of authoritarianism is, it's much, much more than just holding uh, majority vote elections. You know, which is the popular conception of what we're talking about when we're talking about democracy, that we're just talking about majority vote elections. But I'm talking about something much deeper, and that's uh, a set of shared normative values that involve human rights, civil rights, the legal equality of, of all persons, the rights of dissent and criticism, equal opportunity for all persons to do whatever activities they choose without hurting others. Uh, that these are the fundamental values that I'm talking about with democracy that's sort of the opposite of the authoritarian values that would be needed to implement that, that answer to end poverty. And so that's, that's one confusion that I want to clear up as a, because I am going to be talking about democracy for the rest of the talk. And I want to clear up that I'm not talking about just majority voting. Uh, you know, we have majority voting 
does not always work out that well. It's neither necessary nor sufficient for a well-functioning, well democratically accountable government, as you've just demonstrated so brilliantly here in the UK. And uh, you know, uh, my, my country has demonstrated a number of times, and you know, there's chaotic elections all over the world. But that's not fundamentally what we're talking about. We're talking about the values. And by the way, when I say, when I'm say these shared values of democracy, I'm not trying to smuggle in some ideological preference of mine that I want to you know, sneak past you. I'm not trying to smuggle in some right-wing ideology or some left-wing ideology. I want uh, a notion of democracy that's broad enough to include the whole right <coughs> and left of the, the Western, the, the political spectrum in Western democracies. And I'm not smuggling in any sort of you know, particular uh, brand of democracy that might be identified with some ideology. It's just the shared values of that that we've accumulated in our in our democratic experience. So then, you know, now the question: What must we do to end poverty? It doesn't really make sense in a democratic context because there's really no one person that will be voted, you know, into office to do that and. If there was such a person, that they would, again, have to be given unchecked powers, so you would just be voting to give up democracy and to go back to authoritarianism. If, you know, if instead democracy is a process by which voters and interest groups, without any sort of general conception of you know, what is best for society, they're just voting in their own self-interest, that's, a, that's a, a process that's very unlikely to be consistent with whatever general answer was delivered by the development experts. So there's no, in a sense, there's no demand in democratic society for the development experts to provide an answer to that question, what must we do to end world poverty? And, and I mean that including a democratic society in a poor country. In a poor country, there's no sort of general demand for a development expert to fly in and give the one answer to solve the country. It's, a, it's something that has to be achieved within the democratic process within that poor country. So, I mean, there, there are, this is so far a purely normative argument that I'm, that I'm giving you. There are, I'm, I'm in a few minutes I'm going to come to the, the pragmatic argument is, you know, is democracy good for, for development or is it bad for development? Do you need to have authoritarian rulers to achieve development? Do you need a sort of benevolent dictators to achieve development? That's, those are pragmatic, empirical questions that we can ask. That do, the, do dictatorships deliver development? Or does democracy deliver de development? That's, that's a pragmatic question. But you know, before we get to that question, I'm making a purely normative argument. If, you're, if your values are democratic, then you're unlikely to be happy with any authoritarian answer to the development problem. So uh, there was one development economist who was more successful than others in having few checks on his powers and able to implement the solution. He wrote, he wrote a book in uh, 1901 about uh, this very poor country, and the book was called What is to be Done? In that book, he made, the, he made what sounds like a very typical arrogant statement by a development expert. You know, we're, you know if we've made progress in science, we would not we would not want to have freedom for the new views to uh, compete with the old views because you know sci the scientists have already decided that the new views are right, and so you know we d we can't have any sort of democratic deliberation about what is right. We scientists have already figured out what is right, and so this this young man I've been told um, I was on a subway once wearing a certain kind of hat and was told I looked a lot like this gentleman, 
Um, this is this is the, diff the the world's first development economist who is very successful in implementing his development ideas with very few checks on his powers, and came, became somewhat imitated afterwards. So. The, the message, again, that I just am going to keep reiterating is the answer is, is itself is simply not neutral to your choices on whether you're an authoritarian society or whether you're a democratic society. And, any, and so it, it also follows that it, it will fail if we try to extrapolate answers that were achieved in a democratic society and try to transfer them to an autocratic society. Uh, the same conditions simply do not hold. So the, the answer that you seem to identify in a democratic society will not work in an authoritarian society, and vice versa. So you know the whole attempt to sort of imitate the the rich country cases in which societies sort of democratically chose certain policies and institutions and public goods, to poor country cases in which uh, policies and institutions and public goods were imposed by by autocrats or by colonial powers or by outside aid agencies, those are simply, you simply cannot make that extrapolation. The effects of, of the second are not the same as the first. And you know, one reason why you might think the first would have different effects than the second, the, the effects of policies and institutions in a democratic society are different simply because they're the result of a democratic process. And I, I don't have any rosy-eyed naivete that the democratic process works perfectly, but it certainly results in some set of policies that are going to be selected in a, in a very different way from how be, they would be selected in an authoritarian society. So they're selected with some sense of that they reflect the revealed preference of the citizens for certain, for certain policies that the citizens want, for certain institutions the citizens want, for certain public goods the, inst the citizens want, uh, that the, the, all these, and all these things are politically sustainable because they reflect the tr that the trade-offs that were voluntarily accepted by interest groups within a democratic society as these policies and institutions were put into place. You had to have this consensus building process in which interest groups were willing to make trade-offs so you'd know that policies are, are sustainable. Now, none, none of that holds true in an authoritarian society. So. I'm not saying that authoritarian, in an authoritarian society nothing would work, but I'm saying the effects would surely be different when policies and institutions were imposed than when they were the result of a democratic process. Now I'll give you a, a very econometric way of saying this, uh, that if you, it's, it surely must be invalid to use a, a, an econometric strategy where you identify some source of democratic variation in policies and institutions and, and show the effect of those on, growth, on the level of income, let's say, the level of GDP per capita. And then you, you cannot generalize that effect to apply to countries with an authoritarian system, and vice versa. So for example, the famous Asimoglu, Johnson, and Robinson results are, are one example of this, of this being very problematic, that you, uh, their results, they identified essentially the variations in institutions that were associated with colonial regimes, which I, as I understand it, I'm not a colonial expert, but colonial regimes I think were considered not to be democratic, uh, did not seem to give a lot of democratic rights to the people being colonized. So you know, that seems to be like an authoritarian variation in institutions. 
But then the, that does not apply to a democratic environment, and vice versa. Any, any variation that you identified in rich countries, democracies, would not apply to authoritarian countries. So, so what I'm saying is, not only is the authoritarian answer normatively unappealing, which was my first point, but the second point is that it's, it, we now also now, now know that it would not translate from one situation to the other. You have to find one set of answers for an authoritarian system and another set of answers, well, the, the set of answers for the democratic system does, you can't, doesn't really make sense to talk about answers because the answers are decided by the democratic process itself. So this is you know, one possible reason for the failures that I talked about earlier of structural adjustment and shock therapy and governance reform and fixing failed states. So all of these took, you know, took ideas basically from rich country democracies and tried to apply them to poor country societies that were by and large not very democratic or did not have fully developed democratic institutions. And then on top of that, they involved uh, a considerable degree of external coercion by, by aid agencies. That aid agencies were saying, you have to do these policies in order to get our aid loans and the government was very reliant on the aid loans and desperately wanted to get the aid loans, so the government's arms were twisted into doing these policies. So all the arguments that I was just making that you cannot extrapolate from the effects of, a, of an uncoerced institution or policy in a democratic society to the effect in a, a, in a, to a coerced situation uh, would apply to all of these cases. What seems to work in a, in a democratic society does not work when it's imposed on another society. So, and, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic, I think, that um, some of the, the people who are most in love with the free markets uh, seem to have the most enthusiasm for sort of benevolent dictators who will implement their free market ideas. You know, and it's completely a contradiction in terms. You know, it's like saying, you know, you. It's like saying, you know, you should centrally plan how to have a spontaneous market. That's essentially what shock therapy was trying to do for the communist countries. You know, if, you, know you, can, you can write the five-year plan for how to have a free market. That's, that was the attempt of shock therapy. And structural adjustment was like, take our, our policies that work in democratic societies, and, you know, we force you to do them. We force them down your throat, and we expect them to have the exact same effect that they had in a democratic society. Well, it didn't. And it's not working out too well with governance reform or fixing failed states either. So, you know, this autocratic tradition and development really goes back a long way. We, um, we've just had a conspicuous shortage of any enthusiasm for democracy and development for a very long time. Uh, you know, here's a few quotes that I got from uh, a World Bank document on, uh, on governance. I'm, st you know, you know, I still, as before, not totally sure what governance is, but it's something to do with government, I think, and whether governments are accountable and so on. So here's some of the, the I tried desperately to find some sentences with content in this document, and here's the best I could do. Um, so, you know, there is sort of all this blah, 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 blah. Um, uh, and 
you know, none of the words that sort of would resonate historically and would let people know what you were actually talking about, words like human rights or democracy or liberty or freedom or equality, none of those words ever appear in this document about governance, which is presumably about government and about the, you know, checks and balances and powers and behaviors of government, which I would think would have something to do with these democratic values. But none of these words ever appear in this or any of the many other documents that are produced by the international agencies. So there's this total lack of ability or interest in talking about democratic values. Um, let me skip over this one because we're running out of time. But um, This really goes back to the very birth of development. Uh, Gunnar Myrdal in 1956. How many of you have heard of Gunnar Myrdal? I always like to do a sort of poll of how popular various historical economists are. So, so Gunnar Myrdal sort of made this you know, extremely strong statement that super planning has to be staged by countries because they have this illiterate and apathetic citizenry. You really see the paternalism being very overt there. And this is why planning is unanimously endorsed by experts in the advanced countries. Well, he was exaggerating slightly. Uh, there actually was a South African economist named S. Herbert Frankel who objected to this whole idea of what sounded to him alarmingly like, because it was uh, authoritarian paternalistic development. And he said, you know, this philosophy does not have any room for the uniqueness of the mere individual that we're doing all this for. Uh, so, you know, he, he criticized this right away. Now, how many of you have heard of uh, S. Herbert Frankel? Uh, well, um, I'm glad to see his grandson up there in the audience. Um, um, you know, it's, it's striking. The, you know, the, the, the people who have the sort of authoritarian paternalistic view, at least they have the advantage that they have a plan to end poverty. And they always seem to win the argument against the people who just say, no, stop there, don't that, do that, be democratic, don't be authoritarian. And you know, the, so they, you know, the Myrdals are the ones who go down in history. I guess I'm, I don't want to be sound real vainglorious here. I'm kind of hoping to be the Herbert Frankel of this generation. Uh, and you know, the aid system not only does not want to talk about democracy, but it, it actually gives a lot of support for autocracy. Here's some of the aid flows that have gone from the donors to the autocrats over the last five years, from 2004 to 2008. Uh, the US, as usual, is the star performer uh, in giving the most money to autocrats. Autocrats here are defined as being um, a six or a seven, according to Freedom House rankings, called not free, which is highly correlated with a lot of other democratic rankings. Um, but lots of the donors give lots of money to, to autocratic governments. And so here are some of the leading autocratic recipients here on the right. Um, so, you know, the whole idea of development being technocratically neutral, how, how plausible is that when you're actually supporting the current dictator who is in power or the current party, single, single authoritarian party that's in power, that the aid agency is supporting them with financing and you're claiming to be politically neutral and technocratically, you know, implementing a technocratic answer. How believable is that when you're actually giving financing to the autocrats? And of course, aid is itself you know, inherently an, un an undemocratic system, as I've uh, enjoyed finding out in my own experience working for the World Bank. 
Um, the authoritarian systems are not really, you know, real fond of skeptics because you know they've already the aid system has already <coughs> decided, at least you know in public, uh, it has announced a certain set of answers, and it doesn't want the skeptics to come along and say, you know, well, I don't believe those answers. I don't believe in authoritarian imposition of the answers. They don't like the skeptics, but you know, and a lot of people don't like skeptics in aid because you know aid is trying to do good things, and they say to the skeptics, you know, why are you being so gloomy and why are you raining on this parade and why don't you come up with some constructive plan of your own to end world poverty and you know stop, you know, just stop being so negative all the time and you know it's so you know the skeptics are sort of playing the same role as kind of this street sign here in this picture, you know. I I don't know if you have this same highway sign here in the UK that we have in the US. This is for a road when you're, uh, you know, you're, you're going onto a major highway where there's a gigantic flow of traffic that is going to be coming towards you and hitting you head on. And this sign is in in informing you of that fact that you're going the wrong way, you can go back. So you know, imagine me, the skeptic, sitting in the passenger seat and saying, you know, saying to the driver, uh, Oh, excuse me, did you see that sign? I think you're going the wrong way and you should go back. And the driver said, oh, you're always so negative. <laughs> uh, why, don't you come up, why don't you come up with a constructive plan of your own to go somewhere, you know? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you need the skeptics just to tell you you're going the wrong way. Just stop what you're doing. Stop doing it. Reverse it. Go the other way. So now the last subject I have to cover is does, does autocracy actually deliver development? Because there's a lot of people that believe it does. And I want to I wanna discuss that, that evidence that you need sort of benevolent autocrats to achieve development. So let me, let me discuss that. But first of all, let's, let's, let me just make you think a little bit. Is, the, is this whatever I say as far as evidence for autocracy or against autocracy or for democracy, is that really going to be the deciding factor in your minds? If I provide evidence that autocracy is good for development, from now on are you going to you know, be in favor of an autocratic system, not only for the poor countries, but to be consistent, you should also be in favor of one for your own country, wherever you're living. So it, is that going to be enough to convince you to become an autocrat, to be in favor of autocracy if I give you the econometric evidence? Well, I don't think so. I think, I think this is just, again, making the point that this, this argument is really decided not on the basis of econometric pragmatic evidence about what allegedly pays off in a certain material level of GDP. It's, de it's determined by our values. So, you know, so what actually happened in, in the US is you know, there was this guy, Thomas Jefferson, that. This is the statue of him at the University of Virginia. And you know, he mentions some stuff about self-evident truths, men being created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the consent of the governed. And he just asserted these as normative values and said, this is the system we want to have. What he did not do was you know, run a regression of, um, <laughs> of you know, the, uh, the log of uh, per capita GDP on uh, on certain unalienable rights as the first right-hand side variable and um, the consent of the governed as the second right-hand side variable and try to find an instrumental variable strategy to identify causality. And so, so, you know, how, how much am I really going to change your mind about what system you're in favor of 
based on what I'm about to discuss as far as evidence for whether autocrats achieve development. So I'm just, I hope I'm getting across that really we're, we're all, we all act in our, in our everyday lives on the basis of normative values and not on the basis of pragmatic evidence. And again, I want to remind you that um, the evidence we should discuss, we should not limit ourselves just to majority voting as the definition of democracy if we want to discuss whether democracy is, is pragmatically good for development. Uh, this is what um, Lant Pritchett at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard uh, calls, uh, he, he makes a joke about how the donors like to build paper mache bridges, which is the idea that the donors like to create things that look like you know, the, the form that you have in successful developed countries. So they want to make, they, they want to create uh, forms that look like what democracy looks like in, in fully democratic countries, which does involve majority voting. That is one form in which democracy appears. Or they, you know, they've set up a, a ministry of the treasury that looks like the ministry of the treasury in a, in a democratic society. But all of this is just, he has this kind of mouthful word, isomorphic mimicry, which I don't think is going to catch on soon. But, um, uh, but he is convincing on the idea of paper mache bridges. That uh, you know, the paper mache bridges, uh, they they look exactly like the real bridge. Uh, but it's very important to know that they're paper mache bridges because I think one thing you want to do is observe the rule at the top, not try to drive trucks across paper mache bridges. It does make a difference whether it's the form that you're imitating or whether you're really, really talking about the function. So a lot of our, our discussion of democracy and development is hampered by the fact that we're obsessed with the forms like majority voting. And we're not talking enough about the underlying values of, of, of individual rights, human rights, legal equality, all of those, all of those ideals that are really what we're talking about under democracy. So you know, one, way, one way I know this is that people care a lot more about values than they care about majority voting. And you know, one, one set of people that I have noticed is uh, very vocal about how much they love democratic values are uh, a lot of the friends and colleagues that I have from African countries that are authoritarian. Uh, I, have, I have one colleague that I talked to recently who was in jail in his country. I can't tell you his name or the country because he's still so afraid of being persecuted by the government if, if this story is sort of told publicly. But he was in jail reading a book called The End of Poverty. Um, I can't remember the author offhand. But, um, he was reading a book called The End of Poverty and the, uh, in the introduction or the preface to the book the author praised the leader of his country as being one of the new generation of African democratic leaders. My friend wasn't totally convinced based on the evidence that he himself was in jail for being an, a peaceful opposition leader. Uh, I have another friend I was just having lunch with last week from another African country who told me that his, uh, he once had a, a friend who was going to give one of his academic papers on, that he had written on his country to the leader of the country. They had an opportunity, one of the, his European friends had an opportunity to meet with the leader of the country. And my African friend said, said to him, are you crazy? You're going to get me killed. And he's, he's still afraid that his papers, his academic papers will leak and that he's, he, his life will be in danger if his academic research on his own country is leaked. So that's, that's the kind of democratic values that we care about. The, 
those two people that, I'm, that I've talked with don't have any ambiguity about whether they like democratic values or not, regardless of what, whatever we decide about the effect, pragmatic effect on development. So I want to suggest a sort of a normative golden rule for whether we should recommend one political system or another, which is that never recommend a, a political system to another country unless you yourself are willing to live under that system. We all agree on that rule. That never recommend a certain set of you know, individual rights and political liberties and individual liberties and authoritarian systems and so on. Never recommend any system to any other country unless you're willing to go live under that system yourself. You know, we, and you know, we, kinda, we seem to sort of casually observe that you know, there's not sort of like a huge flow of migrants that are desperate to immigrate to North Korea, so there's, there doesn't seem to be a lot of enthusiasm for authoritarian systems. Okay, but finally, I've, finally I'm, after all that, I'll get to the evidence. So what is, what is the evidence on this payoff? Well, I'll still torture you with one more normative question. Even if I give you some evidence on the, the payoff, who decides if the payoff is enough? So is it worth it to sacrifice these normative democratic values if it has some material payoff to have an autocratic, an autocratic benevolent dictatorial regime to promote development? Is it worth it? Uh, well, first of all, we'll, you know, we'll try to figure out if there's some evidence on this, but then we stu we're still stuck with the normative. We can never get away from these normative questions. Again, the, the whole message that you should go away with tonight is that we cannot do value-free development. There's no such thing as value-free development. Demo demo development it can only be based on the well-being of the individuals who are going to benefit from development, and that implies a set of no normative values that cares about the rights of those individuals. So who would, who would decide whether the payoff was enough to convince you to give up democracy and to have autocracy? Who, who, would you have an election on that? Would such an election be valid? I mean, these are sort of torturous, unanswerable questions. Well, I, I hope to save you from some of these torturous questions because I want to uh, suggest that the evidence, if anything, is po is suggests that democracy has a positive material effect on development and that autocracy has a negative effect. Now, here I have to be very honest because I was so hard on the growth literature before. And I have to tell you, this, this evidence is far from airtight. Okay, so I'm doing the best I can with the evidence that we have in the literature, but it's, it's very far from being completely airtight. It's not completely convincing. But it, it's suggestive that, if anything, there is a material payoff to being a democracy instead of autocracy. Now, the reasons it's not so airtight is there, it's very hard to resolve causality. Do rich people just like democracy, and so you always find that rich countries have democracies, or does democracy cause people to be rich? Uh, we, you know, we make various heroic econometric attempts to establish that democracy causes income, but we can never be quite sure that we're totally successful, and we're never quite sure that democracy is not standing in for some other omitted variable that maybe it's really rule of law, or maybe it's really property rights, or you know, there's, there's a whole list of favorite answers of people that we can never be sure which one is the exact you know, fundamental determinant in a pragmatic sense of causing development. But you know, the evidence is, is at least here, here at least in contrast to the growth literature, we do at least have correlations. Uh, here's one of the best of the recent papers, a paper by Pearson and Tabellini. <coughs> 
which is trying to get around the idea of, um, of the shallow notion of democracy by talking about a long-run notion of democracy called democratic capital, uh, which they measure in a very simple way, but they are trying to get at a deeper idea of democracy. It's just the number of years that a country has been in a formal sense of democracy. Uh, they take as some proxy for the sort of building up of the kind of democratic values that I talked about. They find this is strongly correlated with GDP per capita, so years of democracy on the horizontal axis is correlated with the level of development on the vertical axis. And you can see, especially as you get to lots and lots of years of development, it's pretty reliable that you're going to have high income, if this, if this is causal. And then, you know, a more direct attempt to go directly from democratic values to, to development, and uh, of course it's a very tricky thing to to measure democratic values, but there is um, there are some papers now in the whole culture and development literature that try to identify aspects of culture that seem to be, you know, where some cultures seem to be more favorable to ideas that would be consistent with democratic values. So there's this research by um, these three authors, Leakt, Goldschmidt, and Schwartz, called Cultural Rules. And they have this one variable that is basically a a measure of values, and I'm not going to get into how they calculated or how they got the data from or whatever, but it's basically the, the sort of polar opposite thing is whether the individual is sort of autonomous and can do what they want or whether the individual is coerced by the group to do whatever the group says. This is kind of the deep value that they're, that they're trying to measure in their sort of psychology surveys. And they find that the, you know, the, the value of individual autonomy is highly correlated with development. So again, we don't know what causes what. It could be that rich countries adopt you know, uh, individual autonomy. Uh, the causality could go the other way. Uh, but at least, again, we have a correlation. And they make some attempt to resolve causality and argue that it's this value that causes development and not the other way around. And let me skip over that. Now, here's the hardest part, is trying to convince you that East Asia was not completely brilliantly developed by benevolent autocrats. So, you know, this, this is a very strong idea in development. And so, again, I, please bear with me as I try to, try to open your mind a little bit to the possibility that the conventional wisdom is wrong. That the conventional wisdom is that, you know, Lee Kuan Yew developed Singapore. You know, he, Lee Kuan Yew is this brilliant autocrat who you know, just did all the right things and developed Singapore. You know, it's, it's brilliant. He's uh, obviously a benevolent autocrat. You should be very lucky if you have a Lee Kuan Yew as your dictator. And, this, you know, and similar stories for, for South Korea and Taiwan. Uh, and so this is, you know, this is a very uh, appealing idea in development that has lent a lot of support to the idea that you need an autocrat to have development. So let's, let's try to unpack this one idea. Do, do the dictators get the credit in East Asia? Uh, well, first of all, we, we all suffer from this thing that's called the teleological fallacy, which is that it, whenever something happens, somebody intended it to happen. Now, that if, if something happens, then it was the conscious intent of somebody for that to happen. This is, in general, the teleological fallacy. But, of course, there are lots of things that happen that nobody intended. I mean, if we're, bio if we're biologists, we could talk about evolution was something that uh, and this, you know, this the exact analogous debate used to happen with uh, uh, sort of creationism versus evolution. 
where the benevolent, the role of the benevolent autocrat was called, was played by this guy called God, and uh, people always, you know, well, if all these beautiful flowers and human beings and you know my beautiful wife, uh, you, you know, appear, they such a glorious, glorious creation must have a creator, and then Darwin comes along and says, no, you know, there's no creator. There was just mechanical rules of selection of the fittest and genetic variation and selfish genes. And, so you know that's in general it's not true that ed anything that happens needs to have someone intending it to happen, and yet we always want to anthropomorphize everything, you know, social phenomena, economic phenomena, that it's the result of someone you know intending to do that. And so to give you an idea of this, let's think about the evidence that we have on hand right now. So start thinking in your mind what evidence do we have that. Uh, Lee Kuan Yew and the South Korean guy Park and the Taiwanese guy uh, Chiang Kai-shek, what ev evidence do we have that they're benevolent autocrats, that they were benevolent autocrats, that, that they were developmentalist autocrats as the, as the slurk jargon have it? Well, just take a few seconds while I take a drink of water and think about, think about the evidence that we have that they're benevolent and they're developmentalist and all that. Just think about the evidence in your mind that we have for that. Okay, how many of you thought of the fact that they successfully achieved development? That's surely one of the big reasons why we think that they're developmentalist, benevolent autocrats, that they successfully achieved development. That per capita income rose a lot in Singapore and South Korea and Taiwan while, the, while they were in power. Uh, but of course now we're in the land of circular reasoning. The evidence for them being developmentalist autocrats is that development happened. And the cause of development was the developmentalist autocrat. So the argument is completely circular. We've only decided that they were development, devel, developmentalist autocrats because development happened. But development could have happened for lots of other reasons. So we should not automatically jump to the conclusion that the, the autocrat in power gets all of the credit. Uh, so a lot of that is unconsciously based on, on the teleological fallacy and circular reasoning. So let's get to some other evidence. First of all, on average, what is the, uh, of course, what, the reason we get really excited about East Asia is they had incredibly rapid rates of growth. 6% per capita, increasing income by a factor of eight in a generation. That's you know, incredibly fast growth. So what's the evidence between, for, we already saw the evidence for the level of income and, and democracy. What's the evidence for democracy and growth? Well here, uh, here, all those hundreds and all those millions of growth regressions were useful for something because here we never even, no one ever f claimed to find any effect of democracy or autocracy on the rate of growth. It always seems to be zero. So there's no evidence on average that autocracy raises growth. And so uh, alongside those glorious, you know, de developmentalist, I have trouble saying that word, I apologize. Uh, Autocrats. There are very unbenevolent autocrats in Africa and Latin America and the Middle East that did horrible things, and now Central Asia has a whole new variety of autocrats. And you know, there are lots of autocrats that do horrible things. So, you know, on average, the idea that autocrats work out well certainly does not look good. And if we look at the world as a whole, we've only, you know, given sort of special credit to those to those few autocrats that happen to have development happen on their watch. 
And so if we have no evidence from cross-country evidence that, that dictatorship does help growth, then why not some other factor? I mean, just, to, just sort of to just brainstorming here, another thing that all of the East Asian successes had in common was a lot of involvement of the Chinese merchant diaspora, who were the most free, unfettered, uncoerced people in the world, that they could go wherever they wanted and reside wherever they wanted and invest wherever they wanted. And, and they played a huge role in trade and, and investment in all of the East Asian success story. Now, I'm not sure that that's the answer, but I think that's uh, just about as likely to be the answer as the idea that Lee Kuan Yew was a developmentalist genius. Okay, and then here's my last line of defense, if I still haven't convinced you that, that they're benevolent autocrats. Um, you know, these are, we are talking about cases that we're excited about because of high growth rates, as I just said. So these are changes in income. Now, of course, what matters for individual well-being is income, not the change in income. And so, and, and what would cause the change in income would be the change in things that determine income. So if income is related to the level of, like, if the evidence that I showed you previously was correct, that the level of income is related to the level of some kind of democratic freedom, then we would expect changes in income to actually go not with the level of autocracy, but with changes in autocracy. And actually, it is true that there were positive changes in all of these societies in various kinds of individual freedoms. Not all the same kinds, not all at the same time, but over this period there was gradually decreasing repression, increased political freedom, there was always more an increasing economic freedom. Uh, there was, you know, not, there was not a, a sort of totalitarian police state, uh, or if there was at the beginning it was very much unwound by the end. So all of these societies had positive changes in, in individual rights and freedoms. And that goes with changes in growth. So again, I can't really systematically prove that that's, th that that's the explanation, but again, I think that's at least as likely as the idea, again, that you know, the dictators are these benevolent developmentalist geniuses. And the same would be true of China today. That China had, has this remarkable growth, this remarkable change in income today, but it's gone with a big positive change in freedom because there's, there's still tremendous amounts of political authoritarianism and repression in China, but much less than 25 years ago under Mao. And there's much more economic freedom than there was 25 years ago. So uh, un, uh, over that period, there's been a remarkable growth of income and there's been a positive change in both economic and political freedom. So in the end of the day, there's uh, we don't have to torment ourselves with the conflict between normative values and the pragmatic payoff from autocracy because there really is no evidence that autocracy is good for development. And you know, even if it had been, you know, I don't think, uh, you know, I mean, in a certain sense, there is some evidence that autocracy does work on some occasions to to industrialize countries or to raise income. So maybe th there's. We used to believe this a lot more than we believe now with the new evidence that we have since the fall of the Soviet Union, but it did appear for a while that the Stalinist five-year plans were successful in industrializing and raising Soviet incomes and ending Soviet poverty. But even if that were true, would we all volunteer to live under Stalinist societies? And again, I, I, I just keep reverting back to the same normative question that I keep asking you that I think most of us would, would say no. 
that we don't want to give up our even. So in, in the end, you know, whether a one particular autocrat is responsible for the development that happens while they are in power, in the end, that's one observation. And so it's really unfalsifiable to say that he is or he isn't responsible for development. And so, you know, at the end, we, who, who should have the burden of proof? Should a democracy have the burden of proof or should autocracy have the burden of proof? Well, I think if, we go, if we're going from the normative standpoint on development, then autocracy should have the burden of proof. If you want me to give up my democratic rights and, and, and values, uh, then it, you have to prove to me that uh, autocracy. I'm not going to give up my rights for some non-falsifiable uh, evidence that some autocrat on one occasion achieved development. So uh, let me skip over this. So you know. I think another reason why we might think that democracy works is it maybe it is democracy ironically turns out to be the best system when you don't have the experts agree on how to end poverty. Because then you don't, you know, democracy didn't need any, the experts to agree on any centralized actor anyway, because we've already seen that such an actor would not be consistent with democracy. And you know, in general, it's implausible that any centralized actor would ever have sufficient knowledge to find or implement such an answer. And so one, you know, one of the f attractive features of democracy is that it's a huge, collective, decentralized problem-solving machine. That it sets all the individuals free to be political entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs and economic entrepreneurs to solve problems in a decentralized, bottom-up way that cannot be solved by some centralized expert who does not have a sufficient knowledge of each set of local conditions and circumstances and individuals and groups to solve the whole problems of a whole society. And so here's how uh, Friedrich Hayek said it. It's, it's because every individual knows so little and because we rarely know which of us knows best that we trust the independent and competitive efforts of many to induce the emergence, I, I like this phrase, to induce the emergence of what we shall want when we see it. We don't even know what we're going to get when we allow this independent and competitive efforts of many free individuals to operate, but we just know that we're going to want it when we see it. So let me start winding down to the conclusion now. So we didn't know how to solve global poverty, but that wasn't such a bad thing. Because whenever we thought we knew the answer, we did things that turned out to be counterproductive. We did structural adjustment and shock therapy and invading countries to impose democracy and fixing failed states. And the aid system implicitly supported autocracy because of our indifference to this whole issue of democratic rights and values. We supported autocracy. So we supported the guy who was putting my, my friend in jail. Uh, he was supported with lots and lots of, he was a darling of the aid donor, that autocrat was a darling of the aid donors, got tons of money from the aid donors uh, to finance the jails that were holding the peaceful opposition economist that, that was my colleague. And so, you know, it's not such a bad thing that we did not supply these dictators with a lot of spurious answers that, uh, that we were saying would justify their autocracy. So in a way, I think we have to somewhat try to escape from the, uh, the philosopher's curse that was sort of imposed on us ever since Marx. 
And I'm not talking here about the communist Marx, but the sort of consensus Marx that influenced all of social science. That he said, you know, the philosophers only interpret the world, but you know, the point is to change it. Uh, but what was wrong with that idea is that the idea of philosophers changing the world would require philosopher kings, autocratic philosophers. And I don't think we want philosopher kings. I don't think we want autocracy by paternalistic philosophers. And so then the idea of the philosophers changing the world is no longer so attractive. So, you know, I think development has, has spent 50 years way too, spending way too much time on this uh, futile, futile search for the, the answer to end world poverty. And I think we, we would do well to go back in our research to the old-fashioned interpreting the world, just trying to understand how development happens rather than try to prescribe how development is going to happen in a particular society. And the hopeful thing that I want to start leaving you with now, now that we're getting near the end, I want to leave you with some hope, is that this kind of research produces tons and tons of specialized useful knowledge about how to do things that are helpful in poor societies. You know, how to do central bank policy, how to do you know, fiscal policy, how to, do, uh, you know, how to operate health clinics, how to operate public schools. You know, there's lots of specialized knowledge that uh, happens in democratic societies to solve these uh, specialized problems in a decentralized way. And that's the research that will be created when we give up our obsession with the one centralized answer. Now, I don't mean that we should give up our inspiration of wanting to end world poverty. That's why all of us are in this business. The inspirational goal of wanting to see the end of extreme deprivation and poverty, that's something that all of us share. But we don't have to concentrate so much effort on trying to find that one technocratic expert solution. We can, we can just let go of all that and work on our specialized fields in which we find lots and lots of problem solving going on already. So this does suggest lots of little answers to specific problems. And here's a, a big uh, admission that I want to make, that this does still leave a role for foreign aid and NGOs and development workers and aid workers who are implementing and helping people help themselves implement specialized answers to specific problems. So in the end, you know, we can sort of give up authoritarian paternalism but it doesn't matter that much whether we in the rich West, in the development profession, give up authoritarian paternalism because poor people are already themselves moving away from authoritarian paternalism. Uh, democracy is spreading around the world, uh, measured in this formal way, presumably reflecting some values as well as these formal mechanisms. That the, the number of, the percent of not free countries is shrinking steadily and the number of free countries is growing. And we see you know, people everywhere being enthusiastic about political participation, waiting in very, very long lines to want to participate politically. That's the hope that animates this whole agenda of wanting development to be normative, based on normative values that we all share, that these are universal values that are shared by everyone. No one wants to be jailed. No one wants to be tortured. No one wants to be deprived of their rights. These are universal values, and that's something that we can base development on. So let me close with 
one slide that will reveal my sentimental attachment to the values that I've been trying to argue we should base our, our development science on tonight. And that's with a quote from the most well-known president of my country. Let's here highly resolve that our world shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Just before some people drift away, I'd like to make a couple of suggestions, if it's okay with the event staff. Um, we, we will take questions up to about 8.15, and then Bill will be signing copies of his book outside up to about 8.30. There is a small group of people. They'll know who they are going to dinner at Cooper's tonight. Diana, could I ask you maybe to leave at 8.15 and just to say that we'll be about 15 minutes, 15 minutes late. So we'll certainly have time for a couple of rounds of questions. Uh, we'll start downstairs, and then we'll do a round upstairs. A, a gentleman right in the middle. If you could please keep your question short and just say who you are to begin with. Uh, sorry, it is on. Yes, John Martin from Putney, um, social democrat who was greeted this morning by a Polish neighbor who said, uh, you are a conservative now. Yes. <laughs> but I come this evening uh, prompted by my keeping company with somebody who was a fellow student with me in the 1950s. He spent his working life uh, as a senior economist working for DFID. And the point he particularly wanted to uh, make had he attended this meeting, and unfortunately he couldn't come along, but it was to do with the usefulness of auditors. And this prompted me to think that if only the financial aid uh, interests, be they international or be they national, could stipulate to the receiving governments that their grant is subject to audit at the end of it, then if pressure could be brought to bear on those people who we know spend too much of their money uh, furthering the interests of themselves and uh, buying armaments and uh, looking after their tribe, uh, then uh, this would be uh, very healthy. But the, the value of auditors, I'm sure, could reinforce the move to democracy. Uh, there are problems, are plenty, but certainly auditing should be you know, looked at seriously. Thank you. We'll take two more. Yes, gentlemen there. Hello. Hi, my name is Zachary Mizell, and I'm a master's student in international political economy. I was wondering if you had any opinions on the current prime minister of the Palestinian Authority, uh, Salam Fayyad, who I guess would be considered a benevolent autocrat by uh, your standards. I imagine you might be a bit skeptical from your, uh, the speech that you just gave, but it appears as though he's been developing some charismatic authority and has the potential <laughs> to change normative values within uh, the West Bank. Thank you. Gentleman in the back. John Bird, founder of The Big Issue, uh, founder of an international movement that works on giving people self-help, and we work in every continent. Um, I think the big problem, which you don't deal with, is the problem of the fact that you have a capitalist marketplace in giving. 
you have enormous amount of competition, you have duplication, you have waste, you have a situation like what happened in Haiti where everybody goes down there to be on the front page and you actually have this total and utter waste. So when you end your point by saying that we know that there are answers all over the place and let's just get on with our own little answers. None of these answers converge or coalesce into a solution. And until we actually do have a big solution, then all we will have is little answers here and little answers there and little duplications. Since 1945, there has been so an can, increase. Can you just come there's, to the point of the Since question. 1945, there's been a, an enormous increase. Billions of people have joined poverty. Um, unless we find a way of doing it, all we'll have is these petty little sensations all over the place, which looks just like any other marketplace. Okay, thanks. Bill? Um, well, the... Um, the first question I agree with, so there's not much to say there, that auditors would be very useful. Um, and the second question, I know, no, know nothing about the Palestinian autocrats, so uh, I think you know more than I, so um, if maybe I should ask you to explain uh, the answer to your own question. But uh, <laughs> um, So the third question about the... Um, the duplication and waste, that's certainly true. It's because, it's because the aid system, including both official aid agencies and NGOs, is really a non-democratic system. There is no choice uh, element involved. The poor, poor people who are the intended beneficiaries of aid are not saying, well, you know, this NGO is really delivering me what I want, so I'm going to them and those other 10 NGOs are, are doing nothing and, I'm, and they should go out of business because they're not helping me. There's, there's no, no sort of democratic choice mechanism that, that people have to, to drive uh, the unsuccessful official aid agencies and NGOs out of business and that's fundamentally why this, this we have, in aid we have something that's sort of like a, a unplanned central planning where uh, there's an unplanned uh, collection of a huge number of agencies, each one of which is trying to do central plans of their own, which are not uh, internally consistent, and that leads to the chaos that you're talking about. Okay, so we'll go upstairs. Yeah, go. Uh, hello. Um, I, I find your uh, th your argument that we don't know anything actually very convincing. But <laughs> but then I then then if you move forward, uh, basically I realize you you actually have a policy implication with. Uh, with your normative uh, thing for democracy. Mm -hmm. And I sure. see from, from the NYU as well, Przorsky uh, shows obviously that the viability of democracy is actually, I mean, really depends on other things. And I find that not really fair that you're saying that GDP per capita is so noisy and this is so difficult to measure. And then you're, you come with this uh, things about uh, the democracy indices. I mean, they just say, so are you minus 10 to 10? So is that a little bit of a confirmation bias uh, you sometimes ah. critique, uh, for, for instance, with Hajun Chang? <laughs> you could pass it along yeah. to your right, maybe? Hi, my name's Mary Holmes. You seem to imply that countries have a kind of choice. Uh, rich countries have a choice to help. Poor countries also have a choice. But actually, if you took any issue, like trade, the rich countries make the rules. 
trade rules are made at the WTO, and I know each country has a vote there, but everybody agrees that it's the rich countries that make the rules there. So poor countries don't have a chance about helping with trade. And look at Europe. We subsidize our farm goods and things, so that undercuts prices. People in Africa don't have a choice to come somewhere different. America subsidizes all its cotton. I'd like you to comment on that. Yeah, yeah. we'll take one more just up here. It's coming to you from your left. Yeah, um, I was glad you questioned um, the question, what must we do to end poverty? But I sort of thought that you stopped at the what must we do? And you didn't really question the notion that you were using of poverty. You were essentially using an idea that it was economic growth in the South. And I wonder if you don't see how that's sort of sticking to a paternalistic idea that we in the North are rich, you in the poor are South. Are you in the South are poor, Barbara? Uh, these are all excellent questions. Um, the last one first. Uh, it's certainly true that that sort of GDP per capita or the poverty rate are not the sort of comprehensive, all-inclusive measure that we that you know are that perfectly capture every aspect of whether a society is 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 satisfying the needs of its citizens, whether the, the citizens are getting their needs met and are getting their rights respected and whether all these good things are going on at once. There are many different measures of good things that happen and bad things that happen in societies and they cannot be captured by one measure. I, I completely agree with that. You know, to, to make any progress where we are forced to try to simplify uh, the question at particular points in time to try to you know, be able to talk about some sense in which we know that you know that uh, it's there is some paternalism in, in rich people assuming that there are they are superior because they have higher material incomes, and yet there's also a sense in which that's that's not the only thing going on there. That there is uh, a, a reality of people who live on one dollar a day who do aspire to have higher incomes, and so. I agree with you that we want to take the paternalism out as much as possible of rich people, you know, sort of thinking of poverty as this sort of in, inferior position on which they can look down upon poor people. That's, that, a lot of that is going on, and it is very paternalistic. But even if we took that away, there is the reality that there are people who have very little, who have, have very big needs that are going unmet for, you know, medicine for children, food, adequate food, and housing, and so on, so that we can't, even if the paternalism is removed, there is a valid issue that we have to address of material deprivation. Um, so going in reverse order, the question about, uh, again, the, the, the problem you're raising about rich countries imposing trade rules on poor countries, again, this is, you know, another way in which uh, the international system is, is is so undemocratic that the you know it's that itself is a violation of democracy that it's uh, it's not giving weight to the interests of poor of poor countries because it's the rich countries have more political power. I mean that's another thing that we have to talk about in this in this uh, when we discuss development is political power. The rich countries dictate the terms because they have global power that the poor countries do not have. And that, and they, so they impose coerced, undemocratic solutions like, you know, trade rules that favor their own cotton growers and put and bankrupt Malian cotton growers, uh, 
you know, in a fundamentally undemocratic and unfair way. I completely agree with you. Now, the last uh, question about um, do I suffer from confirmation bias on democracy? <laughs> that, that's a great question. Uh, I hope, I hope your, all your instructors are here and giving you extra credit for, <laughs> for, for such a brilliant question. Um, you know, that's, this is a, a very valid issue. You know, we, I, I want to say that we, it's very hard to decide anything on the basis of the evidence but then people will still want to say, well, you know, I have this evidence that dictators are better. You know, I think I have this evidence that, you know, that benevolent autocrats cause, cause development. So what I'm trying to give you in those, in those admittedly simplistic and extremely simplified correlations that I show you in the, in the graph is just that if the burden of proof is going to be from a normative point of view on autocracy, then, you know, here's the sort of empirical correlations that they have to explain. If autocracy is so good for development, you know, why is it that the d democratic societies measured and very imperfectly in a very crude way, but we're pretty sure that democratic societies are much richer than undemocratic society. So that's, that's not, uh, you know, it's not completely reliable evidence, but it is, uh, not consistent with those who want to provide uh, evidence in the other direction. So that's, I'm only providing that kind of evidence because I think from a normative point of view, the burden of proof should be on the, on the autocrats uh, to claim that they will generate huge material payoffs if you just are you know, willing to give up those normative values in return for some material payoff from autocracy. That requires that we have strong evidence for those autocratic material payoffs and I'm trying to show you that they have to swim against the tide of a lot of correlations that go the other way. And as far as growth, we know nothing. You know, we don't know whether democracy or autocracy is, is good or bad for growth. And, that, and that's even, we even know less on that than we know on some of the other questions like the effect of trade on growth. You know, at least with trade on growth, somebody at some point did make some claims that tr you know, free trade was good for growth. And, Probably they were wrong and it was not robust, but, but nobody has ever found even a significant, statistically significant coefficient of any kind uh, that of, in any straightforward, robust way of democracy or autocracy on growth. So the growth is a wash. The levels are suggestive uh, that prosperity and democracy go together. It's not airtight, but it's evidence that the benevolent autocrats need to confront when they're trying to sell themselves as delivering development. I prefer to think his good question was because of his instructors. Um, <laughs> but, but I know I'm wrong in that case. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take one last round of questions. Lady here in the front. Uh, first of all, I wanted to thank you for giving me the illusion that I understand statistics, because that was very powerful. Um, <laughs> Then I was thinking about what you said about uh, living in democracy and um, whether we should suggest, give any recommendations for things that we wouldn't desire for ourselves. And I got thinking about countries that are more democratic than the one I live in or the one I'm from and whether I would want to live there and maybe I still don't. And countries that are like white people want to live in their countries and what people like about their countries. So I just thought about whether we should concern ourselves with the political systems of the countries that we want to help, and whether we're helping the autocrats or we're really wanting to help the people of those countries. 
when we well, engage in any sort of development, really. And I was thinking whether you would be willing to buy into the idea of a good enough autocratic system and a piecemeal approach for a political system change, like you suggest for development. Thanks. We'll, we'll take two last ones, uh, right in the middle and then perhaps right at the front here, if that's okay. Sorry, we're going to have to sort of come to a halt at about 8.15. Yeah, just quickly, um, my name's Felicity. I was just interested in your discussion of East Asia. You didn't really address the, any of the economic policies pursued by East Asian countries, and I was just wondered if you had any comments on the substance of what may have made a difference there. And maybe a lady in the very front row. have to be the last one. Hi, my name is Jennifer, and I have a question about um, aid to Africa, which has certain specifications attached to it. I know that um, traditional doc donors, such as the United States, usually attach um, to the aid that's given some sort of normative judgment values on furthering democracy or literacy, whereas um, other non-traditional donors, such as China, um, don't have such attachments to their aid. And as such, um, I was wondering if you believe that um, Chinese aid, for as an example of um, aid that does not dictate changes to democracy or improvements in the democracy, can that actually harm African nations from developing? Thank you. Thank you. Okay, um, let me go in reverse order again. The, um, uh, First of all, I think the, the aid to Africa that, that tries to promote sort of specific mechanisms of, of democracy is often not that successful because of the, the paper mache bridge problem. That the donors who don't, even though you know, I've you know, been trying to very hard to convince you that democracy is something we should fervently want, that doesn't mean that outsiders know how to engineer it in some other society. And there's nothing that I've said that implies that outsiders have the ability to engineer a democracy in some other society. And some of the donors' attempts to do so have not at all been successful. Uh, whether the Chinese kind of more neutral approach is really neutral and really helpful, you know, I guess it goes back again to the issue of does financing an autocrat have good effects? And I don't think it does. Uh, um, I think any time that you, you know, you have a, a foreign government providing financing to one political side in a country that is asserting its authoritarian claim on power and depriving everyone else of political rights, I don't think that, I don't think the effects of that are going to be good, whether it's the World Bank or China or uh, the US, USAID or DFID or whoever. So that's, that's what I believe. Um, Economic policies in, in East Asia, you know, I think, again, the, um, I think the mistake we often make in, in talking about East Asia is that we, we talk about East Asia, the, we do case studies of East Asia and only talk about what happened in those countries and, and don't place them enough in a comparative framework. So, you know, the, and so, you know, it's, when you're just talking about case studies, it's never enough to say that you know, well, development happened because they did this, you know, and it's, and that's what a lot of the East Asian discussion falls into. It just, you know, whatever East Asia did must have been good because they had rapid growth. You know, well, that's, that's not necessarily true. You know, there's no, there's, 
uh, East Asia may have had rapid growth in spite of some things that were adverse and because other things were so favorable. So you, to really judge what was helping in East Asia, you would need to have some kind of more international evidence on what is good for rapid growth, which I've said we've had a great deal of difficulty finding. Uh, and then since we're not very successful on that, then maybe we'd have to go back to the evidence and levels. Uh, so the evidence and levels is, is broadly that if you have sort of capitalist institutions and, uh, and democracy, then you have high income. And East Asia has unevenly evolved in that direction, first with sort of more economic freedom and then later with more political freedom. Uh, and that's and that's sort of con consistent with the international evidence that sort of capitalist institutions and democratic institutions in the long run go with high income, and East Asia now is high income. I mean, those, those particular development successes like South Korea and, and uh, Taiwan, for example. Hong Kong, Singapore, you know, those still don't have fully democratic systems in Hong Kong, and Singapore not, not at all. But, uh, you know, nothing fits the data perfectly in our, in our world. Uh, we, we, are, we are always going to have counter, counter exceptions to the general rule. The general rule seems to be that, uh, that these institutions, broadly defined institutions that support individual rights, uh, and both economic and political rights, are, are, are those that promote high income in the long run. So I don't think anything in East Asia really contradicts that. So the sort of mainstream consensus about institutions is probably, mo probably mostly correct in the end. Uh, now the last question about the sort of wanting to live in your home country. Well, I want to live in my home country too. <laughs> I certainly sim sympathize with that. That's what, what everyone feels. Uh, and you don't want outsiders to kind of uh, you know, decide what is going on in your country is good or bad. You want to decide what's going on in your country is good or bad. I think that's, uh, I think that's fair also. And I think these uh, these values are universal enough that uh, that they spread on their own. They don't need, uh, you know, to be imposed by outsiders who are currently enjoying democratic systems on other societies that are not. And the attempts to do so are usually disastrous. You know, that I mean. George Bush invaded Iraq because he wanted to give them a democracy, and that is obviously a, a you know, the, the whole idea of coercing freedom is a contradiction in terms. It's like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to coerce you to have the right to be uncoerced. You know, it just, it's just a contradiction. It just, you cannot impose freedom on someone else. It's an inherent contradiction. So, uh, you know, I completely respect, uh, you know, every society's right to to discuss among itself what kind of system they have now, what kind of system they want to have. Change is going to be gradual. Not, it's not going to be an overnight thing that you suddenly jump from autocracy to democracy. That ne has never happened in any country, and it's not going to happen in, in your country or any other country in the future. So, you know, I think we're talking on the, on the same page in the end. Uh, just before we uh, thank Bill in the usual way, uh, Bill's going to scoot off this side, I think. And if you just let him get out, then he can sign a few copies of books. Um, and then those of you that are going to the restaurant, Coopers have been told that it'll start at around 8.30. If you are going, Coopers is on the southwest corner of Lincoln's in Fields. Uh, Bill, thanks very much for coming and talking to us tonight.